Boss Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live usually engages the Christian message before a live audience in Melbourne. Yet today our show isn't being recorded before a live audience. Instead, today our show comes from Ridley College in Parkville. So today's episode is a little bit like Logos pre-recorded, but nonetheless, I'm still sure you'll enjoy what we have in store. My guest today is businessman, scholar, and theologian, Dr. Ken Barnes. Ken is the Dean of the Ridley Marketplace Institute, and he's not your typical career academic. For many years, Ken was a senior international business executive who balanced life in the corporate world with duties as an ordained minister and theological scholar. He has earned four advanced degrees in biblical studies, divinity, theology, and ministry. His research explores the intersection of faith and work. In 2006, Ken left the corporate world to serve as a university chaplain and tutor in theology and religious studies at Oxford University. His unique set of qualifications make him the ideal person to lead the Ridley Marketplace Institute, an academic institution exploring the relationship between faith and work. And he joins me now. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Terrific. Uh, So a senior business executive and an ordained minister and scholar, how did you fit it all in? A very patient wife. Right. <laughs> um, it, it was not designed to be that. It, it just happened. Yeah. So I, uh, like many people, when I finished university, I went into the business world and found that I was pretty proficient at it and moved up the uh, corporate ladder, as it were, but also found that it was um, an area that didn't really tick all the boxes for me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I began to consider whether or not there was something else that God was calling me to do mm-hmm. and whether or not there was a deeper understanding really of what my life was all about than just being a successful business person. Mm. So what kind of business were you in? What well, you? I, um, you would call it now just general management. I'm mm-hmm. the guy who sits in the corner office. but um, sharpening, I, sharpening pencils and stuff. Yeah, sharpening <laughs> pencils. Uh, spending too much time looking at balance sheets and income statements and things. But um, originally uh, I was in the manufacturing sector mm-hmm. uh, and then from there I actually moved into the uh, chemicals uh, sector. So, so both finished goods, uh, mostly finished goods really, and uh, had the opportunity to do that all over the world. So I usually would run very large uh, divisions, multinational divisions for uh, multinational companies. So, so that's what I did. And then in uh, 1984, which sounds like a long time ago now, Mm -hmm. um, I started to read theology Mm. and found that I really loved uh, that world as well and ultimately became ordained and combined my work uh, as an ordained minister uh, serving a church uh, as part of a staff with my uh, corporate life and then continued to read theology to a high level until I finally uh, was able to actually uh, become an academic, as it were. Mm. So how did your week look then? So you were flying around the world during the week and then you'd come home on the weekend to preach? or What happened? Yeah, pretty much. In, in, in fact, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, in, in the corporate world, I was just the boss, you know, and, mm. and, and I didn't have to do a lot of traveling because I was responsible for the whole world outside of North America type thing. But by the same token, that gave me a tremendous amount of time to, uh, to read and to research and to write and to think. Um, 
not enough thinking uh, mm. goes on in, in both the corporate world and, <laughs> and in the world of the academy in some ways. Um, so I would use my time for that. Um, but yes, then when I would be back home uh, in the local community, I was known as Reverend Barnes. Uh, not, you know, Ken the corporate guy yeah. or Ken the academic. Uh, and, and so that's how I balanced it. And um, sometimes it was three parallel lives. Sometimes it was a little more integrated. Wow. So what uh, lessons did you learn as a Christian believer managing both these roles, all these, these different roles? Well, I think that the primary lesson I learned is that you can't live three parallel lives. <laughs> you, you really do have to find a way to integrate um, what your beliefs are with how you conduct your affairs. And that really, to me, is, is the fundamental issue in the whole faith work uh, arena. Mm. Um, you know, we, we cannot compartmentalize our lives, as, as um, attractive as that may seem at times. It just is contrary to what the scripture teaches us. Right, yeah. And then and your personal experience testifies to that as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, to the point where I finally got to the point where um, I realized I needed to try to teach the next generation uh, mm. not to make those mistakes. So were there any experiences that you felt where you were stretched or that you felt these you were compartmentalized and you realized I can't be like this? Yeah, I think one is it's very tempting to conform to whatever the norms are of your work culture. And as Christians, I believe we are called not to conform. In fact, the Bible is quite clear about that. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about it in a minute. But um, that was one area. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other area was simply uh, in the realm of business ethics. You know, you have to make hard decisions in business. And you have to be responsible, especially the further up you are in the corporate ladder, for many different stakeholders. Mm. And that puts our beliefs to the test. It, it really does uh, test our integrity to, to a very, uh, very high level. Mm. Mm. Now, you mentioned that you were called by God or you were, that God had other ideas for you in your business career. But maybe let's just step back and consider how you became a believer in the first place. What was it? That convinced you to become to follow Jesus. Well, that's a great question. I was raised in a um, a very devout Roman Catholic household. My mother, especially, was um, extremely devout, but in a very Roman Catholic way—rosary mm -hmm. beads and that sort of thing. She was also very open-minded and had no problem with me spending time with other Christians. And I went on a, um, a Christian retreat uh, when I was about 12 years old, 13 years old. And frankly, the primary reason I went was there was a girl I wanted to get to know. Uh, Priscilla Pierce, if she's out there, Priscilla is the girl I went on that retreat for. And, uh, and on that retreat, um, I came back disappointed that I hadn't come back with Priscilla as my girlfriend. Right. But I did come back with a Bible. Yeah. And so I started to read it. And I read the Bible vociferously, cover to cover, every night in my room I would read the Bible. And to put it into just short layman's terms, I just fell in love with Jesus. I, I was just so blown away by the person who Jesus Christ is that it became compelling for me to consider the truth claims of the gospel. And that's how I became a believer. Wow. And that then obviously impacted your life in the workplace as well. 
It impacted every aspect of my life. It changed my life completely. Now, when I went to university, like a lot of students at university, um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't the, the greatest model of Christian virtue. Right. Uh, you know, I had a good time, like a lot of students do. But I met the woman who would become my wife. And she was her name wasn't Priscilla. Her name was not Priscilla. Her name is Debbie, and 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 she's been Debbie Barnes for uh, almost thirty six years. So. She was a very devout Christian, and I think that was one of the things that drew us to each other, was our, our common beliefs, and uh, our love not only for each other, but our love for Christ. And so, at that point, it was pretty clear that whatever I did with my life, it was going to have to be consistent with my, with my credo. Mm-hmm. And obviously the whole faith work thing is the real passion of yours that's driven you for many, many years now. Yes, I started doing research into this in uh, 1994, so over 20 years ago. Wow. And it's been very important to me. Now, in 1970, economist Milt Friedman had an article published by the New York Times magazine positing the theory that the primary moral responsibility of a corporate executive is to make as much money as possible while conforming to the basic rules of the society, both those embodied in law and those embodied in ethical custom. Do you agree with this or his moral vision of business? Well, it's an amoral vision of Mm -hmm. business. Milt Friedman was a brilliant economist, and so for the the sake of your listeners, maybe you aren't familiar with Milt Friedman. Uh, He was a Nobel Prize winning economist from the Chicago School. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agree with much of his economic theory. But when it came to this issue, he was absolutely wrong. And he simply believed that businesses, companies, had no social responsibility whatsoever. That they existed only uh, for the purpose of increasing the wealth of shareholders. That was their raison d'etre. And so if you think about the fact that this doctrine this Friedman Doctrine, as it's become known, has pretty much been taught in the business schools all over the world for the last 40 years, Mm. going on 50 years. You have to ask yourself, is that really a vision of corporate life that we want to follow? Mm. And here's why Friedman is wrong. He says that the primary responsibility of an executive is to make as much money. Well, let's think about that for a minute make as much money over what period of time. He doesn't consider the element of time. Mm. Now, a corporate executive makes decisions every day that are obviously geared toward maximizing the assets of the company and improving the lot of all the stakeholders, first among equals being the shareholders. I don't deny that. But you can make decisions in business that are very profitable in the short term but could become an existential threat to the business itself in the medium to long term. Mm. That's what we saw with the the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, and specifically the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Mm. In in the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the executives made short-term decisions, which in their minds were going to produce extremely large profits. But in fact, they were sustaining a system that was unsustainable. So he doesn't take time into his calculation at all, when he says, make as much money as possible. Then he says, make as much money as possible within the constraints of the law and ethical custom. 
Well, the other thing we learned during the global financial crisis is that people could do extremely dangerous, reckless, immoral things and still fall within the letter of the law. So the law is a very blunt instrument, frankly, and a very poor um, guide for moral conduct. And, and so you can't just say, if you're within the letter of the law, you are somehow automatically in the right morally. The two are mutually exclusive propositions. Which brings us to that last premise, within the constraints of ethical custom. My question would be, which ethical custom? Mm. You know, I do business all over the world and have for many years. And there are different ethical customs. In some cultures, in some countries, bribery, for instance, is the ethical norm. I would say that we need to resist conforming to those ethical norms. So everything really about the Friedman Doctrine when it comes to this area of social responsibility and ethical behavior is just wrong. So... You don't think, therefore, that his vision ultimately satisfies? Well, I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. Satisfies whom? Or satisfies us as a society? No. I think, I think that what it does is it gives a get-out-of-jail-free card to the people who uh, have to make ethical decisions. And what people sometimes forget is that business ethics has to involve more than just a few people in the corner office or in the boardroom making decisions. Technology has changed the way business is done. Consequently, business decision-making has been driven far down organizations to the point where you almost don't even have a hierarchical construct for organizations at all anymore. You really have the, the, you know, the dawn of the virtual corporation where you have very, very flat organizations and information and authority to act on information. is passed so far down the organization that people can make decisions, ethical or otherwise, that affect everyone, and the corner office doesn't even know it happened. Mm. So how are you going to create ethical business cultures, virtuous business cultures, if your only moral standard is make as much money as possible? Mm, mm. It becomes very difficult. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. Now, there was a famous meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, which hosted many of America's most powerful and influential captains of industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting? Or yeah, if, well, if, it, if it actually ever happened. Well, that's just it. It could be an apocryphal story. But it's a wonderful story, and it's anecdotal. It's out there in the public domain. And the story is that at the height of the 1920s industrial boom, before the Great Crash of 1929, there was a, a meeting of industrialists, the captains of industry of their day, uh, in Chicago at this famous hotel. And um, the names of the people in some ways aren't important, but it was a who's who mm. of American industry. And within 10 years of that meeting, um, all of them were either in jail, dead, bankrupt, or some combination thereof. Mm. And so people have used this as a morality tale to say, well, you see, there you go. If you're rich and successful, you must be on the wrong side of God, and therefore judgment will come to you. I think that is a very naive and simplistic and, frankly, unbiblical uh, understanding of the relationship between wealth and our moral responsibilities. Mm. So what does... So is there a moral to the story? Um, well, one moral potentially would be this whole notion of, well, if you're wealthy, God will condemn you. 
The problem with that, as attractive it may, as it may seem to some people, is that the biblical evidence doesn't support it. Mm. Uh, as we can see, the way Jesus dealt with wealthy people uh, was dependent on their personal circumstances. Uh, yes, uh, there is the woe to the rich uh, narrative, but what the rich meant in Jesus' time is very different from what the rich means in our free market society. Mm. However, there is a warning against the um, temptation to idolize wealth. So it just isn't that simple to say, if you're rich, you're at enmity with God, because the Bible is full of examples of rich people with whom God is quite pleased, mm. and God has a wonderful relationship, and who flourish under God's grace. Mm. So then how is the Christian different in dealing with their workplace, and how should the Christian business person act? Well, this is a fantastic question because I think if we look at the Bible, if we take Romans 12, 1 and 2. Should maybe, we look at that now? Yeah, why don't you read that? So I'll read that out. So as part of Logos Live, we do reflect on part of the Bible, the Logos, uh, which resonates with the experience of our guest. And today's passage is at Romans 12, 1 to 2, which says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So what's this saying? Okay, so I think the first concept here is the notion of work as worship. We, we so often reduce our economic activity to the level of utility. Um, how can we use it to feed our bellies, put a roof over our head, or create some sort of comfort for ourselves and our family? That's a very different understanding of work than the one we find in the Bible. The Bible um, tells us really quite explicitly, as well as implicitly in many places, from the creation narrative on down, that God himself is the worker par excellence. God created God acted uh, to his own purposes, and all that exists exists by the will of God and by the hand of God. Well, if we are indeed created in the image of God, as I believe we are, then human work, human economic activity, should be a form of worship, which means it should exist and it should be conducted in a way that gives God the glory. Doesn't just feed our bellies, doesn't just put a roof over our head, as important as those things are, we as believers, as Christians, should see our economic, economic activity as an actual act of worship, mm. just like singing the hymns or going to church. I suppose that's what it says here, doesn't it? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. It's, it's not saying you only do that at, on a Sunday between 9 and 11 in the morning. It's, it's all of life. It's who we are. It really is an ontological uh, to use a theological term, what, what me. Mean it, means, it means it, it gets to the essence of our being. Mm. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be Christian? And, and so we spend most of our waking hours in some form of economic activity, mm. either paid work or other kinds of work. And it's very important, by the way, that we not, um, that we not belittle the unpaid work that people do every single day, which is still work and still has tremendous value to all of society, and which is also a form of worship. Mm. 
So I suppose if you, if you see things from that ontological perspective about who you are, what you do becomes less important, perhaps. How you do it is become, becomes the only important thing. Mm. Um, and why you do it. Not what you do. What you do, in my opinion, is completely irrelevant. Um, there is, in my opinion, nothing more honorable about being a university professor than being the person who cleans the lecture room in which we teach. The person who cleans that lecture room is providing a hugely important part of the system. But more importantly is, if they do it with the spirit of, I'm going to clean this lecture room as part of my worship to God, then it becomes a beautiful thing. It becomes something to celebrate. And, and, and so to me, that is much more important. It's much more important than worrying about what we do. So then how should a believer act? Well, according to this passage? Yeah, well, I think the key to this passage is the whole issue of nonconformity. Because some people will hear this and they'll say, oh, well, you know, Christians just should be honest business people or what have you. Well, I'm sorry, you don't have to be a Christian to be an honest business person. Uh, most business people, in fact, do act honestly most of the time. I think the real issue is this issue of non-conformity. So it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Exactly right. So if we have um, businesses and an entire economic system which has a pattern which reflects the Friedman Doctrine, we have got to resist it. We've got to act against it. We've got to say, wait a minute. Um, we don't believe work is only about making money. We don't believe that businesses only exist in order to line the pockets of a handful of shareholders. We think that all economic activity exists for the purpose of glorifying God and also improving the common good. Because the one thing that is very clear about the gospel message from cover to cover in the Bible is that no man is an island unto himself. We do not exist just for our own utility. We exist for the common good. God has created us in community, and he asks us to operate in community. And there's you know, another wonderful passage in Romans uh, where God talks about um, the body as being a metaphor for how human beings should interact with each other. We are all members of one body. Each part of the body has a unique role to play. Mm. Well, I bet most of you listeners probably don't realize that the word corporation is built on the word corpus from the Latin, which means body. And it's because in law, a corporate entity is treated like a person. I think ethically and morally, a corporation should also be held accountable and act responsibly like a person. So what does this then practically mean for the average worker out there not conforming to the, to the world? Well, I think the first thing is really to um, reject and rebuke the whole notion that how much money you make defines your worth, because that is not a biblical principle. Mm. How much money you make may define how much you're able to spend but it certainly doesn't define your worth. Mm. We are worth much more to God than just that which can be calculated in a bank statement or on a balance sheet or in any other way. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing I think is to think about work uh, in terms of calling, in terms of what it is I should be doing that will really enhance um, the community that I serve. 
And that community starts with your family and then extends from there. So I really think individuals find themselves worrying too much about jobs mm. and about the professionalism of their activity and less about how what they're doing reflects who they are in the sight of God. Mm. So I think that's a big part of it. And then the other part of it is to simply resist the temptation to go along with the crowd. Um, you know, the crowd is a dangerous thing. And they put Jesus to, to death, didn't well, they? Well, exactly right. And, and, and the crowd is what created the global financial crisis, by the way. Mm. You know, the so-called lemming mentality where you just you, you go over the cliff because everybody's going over the cliff. So I think people of um, faith, and I also think any person of goodwill, even non-Christians, non-believers, any person of goodwill should be, should be reacting against this notion that somehow economic activity is amoral, that there is no moral compass, there is no ethical requirement. I think that is a very dangerous thing for society. So what does this view of work then offer, you mentioned it just now, with, to the unbeliever, someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, what does this perspective maybe challenge them with or offer to them? Well, I think two things. One is to say that this is what we Christians, what we believers would call part of God's common grace. It is not unique or specific to Christians. Uh, come to the party, you're welcome. That's the first thing I would say. Mm. But then I would ask the question, what is it about these truth claims that would make a Christian have the audacity, the courage, if you will, to stand up against the tide of the times and the common practice of businesses to operate in a moral vacuum? Because if you do that, I think you will find that this gospel and this person of Jesus Christ to be quite irresistible. That's certainly what I found. So then, as we close up, what should then be the primary moral responsibility of workers? I think the primary moral responsibility of workers is to glorify God in their work and seek the common good. Simple as that. Hmm. If you were to have your time over again in your working career, what would you do differently 30, 40 years ago that you uh, know now? I'm not sure I would do a lot differently. I do think I would have been um, much more conscious of the fact that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very lonely thing to be the lone voice in a board meeting uh, when everybody wants to do the expedient thing and you want to do the ethical thing. I've been there. It's difficult. But the fact of the matter is you're not alone. You're not alone because there are other people who think as you do. You're not alone because God is in that room with you. Well, let me leave you with the Logos for the day. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. Okay.